few months ago, I was having a very 21st century experience, and I was part of an online conversation with some people I'd never met, but who had first responder, first responder, all kinds of trouble, everybody's running away, and they're running toward the mess kind of jobs, and they were talking about something they called resilience training, and somebody asked, what is that? And somebody said, some people are eggs and other people are tennis balls. You follow the analogy? Take a tennis ball, smash it to the ground, what happens? Bounce right back. Drop an egg about six inches, what happens? Everywhere. In fact, that's one of the entertaining things about childhood, having little children, is a complete loss of perspective. Um, They just don't know. This week, a little video went viral. Some kid walked out of a restaurant with a cup. Did you see this? And he realized, he got in his mother's car and realized he had this cup, which he's actually technically stolen, and he became panicked that he was going to be arrested and started crying. She couldn't stop laughing, and he kept screaming, I'm your son! (laughs) Gosh, Mom, you know, care a little. They're taking me to Corcoran State Prison. You don't even care. Part of growing up is being less of an egg and more of a tennis ball, having some resilience, but almost everybody has a breaking point somewhere that just crushes them, flattens them. When Paul was writing the book of Philippians, you would think that this is one of those experiences that's going to crush him and push him beyond his ability to endure. See, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. The book in the Bible is called the Philippians because it's a letter to them. If he were writing to us, it might be the Huntington Beachians. That doesn't sound too good. Orange Countyans, the Californians. The pay way way too much to live where we do, but gosh, it sure is now sightside tribe, okay? He's writing them almost certainly from Rome in prison. If you keep reading his letter, you'll say he'll refer to his own life as a drink to be poured out on the Philippians' faith, a final thing that he can do. His life is that fragile. It can be overturned. It can be ended by one man's decision just like that. Paul is very carefully guarded. He says he is in custody by the imperial guard of Rome. These would have been Rome's special forces. To this day, Roman tactics and courage are studied by armies around the world. These were ferocious soldiers. It it wasn't for no reason that they had an empire that spanned the known Western world at the time. They had gone everywhere and subjugated all kinds of people because of their relentless military ferocity. And now Paul, a beaten-down former rabbi is in their custody. And the best he can do is write letters. And he wrote the Philippians to give them perspective on what was happening to him in prison. I want you to pick up the reading with me, if I can avoid falling off the stage. Are you regretful that I didn't go down? You can be honest. We can tell the truth in church. Yeah, somebody would like to see it. Thanks. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me… Now, again, what's he talking about? We're dropping in in the middle of his letter as we go through this series toward Easter. What has happened to Paul? He's in prison. 
What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's define some terms. Gospel is not a musical genre. It is the good news. What's happening to me, being in this prison, being with these men, being under their custody, having this kind of scrutiny, has actually served a single purpose. It's helped spread the good news. Jesus' story is advancing because of my imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I've read that a lot of times in my life. I didn't realize until studying it more carefully this week just what a pressure cooker this must have been for Paul. According to a, an amazing New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson, the imperial guard at full strength is 9,000 men. And these are the Roman soldiers, Roman soldier. This is the top. This is the cream. These are the best. Paul's in their custody. Roman soldiers are the kind of people who could take human life and preside over the crucifixion of other human beings callously, only keeping an eye on the crowd so that the crowd didn't stop the crucifixion, perhaps enjoying the bloodlust that was part of their job. Paul says, I'm with them, I'm in prison, I'm shackled, and perhaps in some cases shackled to one of these men, but what I want you to know, in case you think this means defeat, in case you think this means that God is done with me, or that God walks away from people who trust Him in circumstances like this, the whole point of my imprisonment is it has advanced the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus and people partnering together and coming together for the good news, that's the whole point of the book of Philippians. And what Paul's telling us here in the first couple of verses is the gospel, the story of Jesus is so important and so good that he's willing to do whatever it costs to get that message out. Again, to be very specific, what has cost Paul, what Jesus has cost Paul on this occasion is his freedom. And there's a little something I learned from Paul, even this morning, reviewing and reading a little bit more. One of the guys I was reading after made this very insightful observation. He said, what sets Paul apart is he's in the middle of his earthly circumstances. He's looking for God's eternal purpose. That's one difference between the tennis ball and the egg. If you focus on your earthly circumstances, you're a day away from being crushed all the time. You have to look past earthly circumstances to an eternal purpose to find hope and to find God in the midst of it. Life's hard, have you noticed? My first semester of Bible college, a great man, a, a, a giant among Bible teachers named Dr. Eli Haru said to us, fresh-faced, 18-year-old, recent high school graduates, boys, how many of you have suffered? And only a couple of us raised our hand because generally speaking at 18, you don't realize it yet, but generally speaking for most people, life's pretty decent. Gets harder later. And he said, you will. He said, hang on to Jesus because the rest of you, if you haven't yet, you will suffer. And he was right. 
Life has all kinds of surprises and shocks, and sometimes it has Roman soldiers coming for you. And Paul says, in the middle of all this, my concern for you, church, is that you'll know what the outcome of this is. My, the point of this letter is to reassure you, after I give God thanks for you, I want you to know something very, very practical. I have found God's eternal purpose in this prison cell. What God is using this for is to spread the story about Jesus among the special forces of Rome. And how else could a Jewish rabbi have access to the imperial guard? This is not a group you can have an audience with. They're not available. They serve the emperor. They're not there for anybody but him. Now, Thousands of people, perhaps, have heard the story of Jesus. D.A. Carson says the imperial guard at full strength, again, is 9,000 people. Now, how is it possible that 9,000 people heard about Jesus from one rabbi? I mean, are they taking turns guarding him? How long is he going to be in prison, right? If we send a two-man guard, it's going to take a while, right? I'm not good at math either, but that's going to take longer than Paul has. How is it possible that the entire imperial guard has heard that Paul is in prison for Christ? Word of mouth. See, Paul's accustomed to prison. He's not intimidated by it. The Philippian jail, the Philippian church started out of a prison meeting. If you read Acts 16, you can put the story together. Paul went and found some women worshiping God along the riverside. He preached to them. A little church was birthed, then he found a demon-possessed girl who was an early victim of human trafficking and her spiritual powers were being used to enrich people. He set her free in the name of Jesus, and that ended up with Paul taking a beating from a crowd and later a formal beating imposed by the law by his captors in Philippi. From that, on that day, God set Paul free from prison through a miracle, and the jailer who had once presided over his beating asked him this vital question, what must I do to be saved? And he got the clear answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and he did. So I wonder when, Paul, when this letter arrived at the little church in Philippi, if the jailer in the church smiled and thought, here's Paul again. The guy's always ending up in prison, but here's the point. Wherever he is, whether it's to a jailer or to Roman soldiers, Paul always turns that terrible earthly circumstance toward the eternal purpose of helping other people hear about Jesus. And he was willing to pay whatever cost it took. Now, there's a danger here for a preacher in a church. I will say that we at Crosspoint must make sure that people hear about Jesus whatever that costs, and you would probably say, I hope, right? That's the point. And see, that, if we're talking rhetorically, that makes a great rhetorical point to rally the troops, hit one of those easy talking points like they do in political speeches. Down with poverty. That's bold, right? That takes courage to, uh, down with cancer. Next, they're going to come up against kicking kittens. I mean, the, the talking points are very, very simple. But Jesus said if anybody was going to follow him, he should first count the cost. So if what matters most is getting the gospel to people, it's very unlikely that you and I are ever going to Theo Lacey to the Orange County Jail for our witness for Christ. If you're a reasonable, respectful citizen, 
you enjoy amazing freedoms in this country, very unlikely that they'll ever jail you for Jesus. So what's our cost? I bragged on you in the first service and said that between the two, you were the most talkative. And when I invite you to talk back, you talk back the most of the two services. So do not disappoint me. Let's think, let's think about our cost. If what matters is getting the good news of Jesus to people, anytime you share that good news, there's a cost. There always is. What's our cost? Talk to me. Okay, you all talked at once. I over I overmotivated. Sorry. Can you take turns? Jason? There's a monetary cost to getting the good news out. If we sincerely care about people beyond our borders, it takes money to send people to Karachi. It takes money to send people to Lebanon and to Mexico and to the Philippines. It takes money to keep the gospel radiating from this corner, too. Wherever the message is preached, there's a financial cost. What else? It takes some time. Somebody said? Comfort. Explain. Okay. So maybe some, some sacrifice some of our comfort. What else? Mm-hmm. That's, that's my question. What does that look like? Put your, now think about yourself. Don't think in big concepts. Think about you, your friends, your family, your coworkers, those of them who need Jesus. What's it going to cost you to be the messenger? Rejection. Somebody else framed it another way, relationships. You mentioned that name, people you love dearly who come around your table warmly and happily, you start making a big deal about Jesus. Let's be real, they may pull back. You may lose friends. Paul's telling you from a cold prison cell, it's worth it. The value of Jesus, the treasure of Jesus is seen in this. Whatever it costs the messenger to make sure that people hear about them, it's worth it. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier to talk about Jesus from this pulpit than it is on my street corner. It just is. I have neighbors, I have wonderful neighbors, but there's a few people in the neighborhood that aren't especially stoked to have a pastor as a neighbor. I guess I'm not much fun at parties or something. There is a relational tension that comes up as soon as Jesus is mentioned. Paul's saying the gospel matters so much, it's worth it. Whatever that cost is, it's worth paying it. He goes on to say something pretty surprising, verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most of the Christians in that region, having heard of Paul's imprisonment, stepped up. Sometimes that'll happen. Part of our family history is that some distant relative was killed in World War II, so three men volunteered to take his place. They can't kill our cousin. We'll all go to war. That's a strange thing, that suffering would call forth more courage. Sometimes suffering makes people step back. Paul said, in my case, the fact that I'm in prison has given me the opportunity to tell these Roman soldiers why I'm here. That must have been quite a moment. 
because these are hardened men who have very little tolerance for other people's religions. Their religion is Rome. Their doctrine is war. And here's a battered, beaten down little Jewish rabbi who says, sir, can I tell you why I'm here? He didn't protest his innocence. He didn't say that he didn't belong in jail. He simply told them about Jesus, and that, scat that word scattered among 9,000 men. Apparently, some said, man, have you had time with Paul yet? He's not like the other prisoners. He doesn't swear at us. He doesn't call us pigs. He talks about, he talks about this man they called Yeshua who was killed on the other side of the Mediterranean. And this man says that he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And that he'll forgive anybody's sin. And this guy actually believes it, and that's why he's in prison. He's made such a mess telling everybody he can't about this. That's why he's here with us. Paul was willing to pay that cost, and a lot of Christians, Paul says, were encouraged, were emboldened by his faith, and they are now, into verse 14, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Understand the first century church. Sometimes we romanticize it. Like every Christian in the first century within the lifetime of Jesus were just these amazing Christians who got it all right and never had any fears. No. This emboldened group was once afraid. Now that Paul's in prison, they've actually stepped forward and they've become courageous and they're telling people about Jesus. And then there's another group that we need to talk about and I need to be honest with you about. Look at verse 15. Some of these brothers, verse 15, still talking about Christians, some indeed preach Christ from, what's that word? Envy or jealousy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. All kinds of Christians, since Paul went to prison, are talking about Jesus, but within all of those people talking about Jesus, there's two groups. Some are doing it sincerely, and some of them are doing it with bad motives. Look at verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, in other words, the other group, proclaim Christ out of rivalry not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. These are Christians. Good guys or bad guys? They're Christians, but they're not good guys. One of the reasons I love the Bible and one of the reasons I know that it's the Word of God is it speaks of supernatural things, but when it speaks about natural life, it describes it perfectly. It never, it, the book is a, the Bible is a book filled with hope, but it is not a book of wishful thinking. It tells you about God, people, even Christians, just exactly as they are, not as we would wish them to be, but as they actually are. Did you know that some Christians can talk about Jesus out of envy, rivalry, and self-interest? Let me put it more plainly. Did you know that there are many preachers who are self-interested? who really do love Jesus and belong to Him, but are also kind of interested in what they get out of it? That's what's happening here. These aren't false Christians, and they're not preaching a false Christ. These are Christians of all kinds have said, since I went to prison, everybody stepped up. And most of the brothers are doing so sincerely. They have been filled with genuine, godly, holy courage, and they're stepping up to take my place. In case they kill me, 
They want to be busy doing what they can wherever they are. There's another group that is envious of me. They've created a rivalry with me. They are not sincere in their preaching. In fact, they hope that when I hear about them preaching, I'll feel worse while I'm here in prison. See, people who are envious usually think that you are too. These guys wanted market share. They wanted their name up in lights. They wanted to be the conference speaker. If there was a brochure to be printed inviting all the churches in the region to come listen to the one guy, they wanted to be that one guy. That's always been the case. Sometimes the people who stand behind this pulpit, sometimes this man standing behind the pulpit right now has not only the concerns of Jesus in his heart, but also his own And Paul says the gospel is so precious that it's a matter of getting it out, whatever it costs. And not only that, it doesn't matter whoever does it. Whoever extends the gospel, look at how he wraps this up. This is the surprising thing. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? In other words, what do I think about this? Here it is. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, in other words, whether the motives are good or bad, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, what? I rejoice. I don't care. As long as they're telling people about Jesus, I don't care why they do it. Now, let's be real. Do motives matter? Absolutely. Jesus said they did. Jesus said, if you make a big show of public praying and giving, that's all you're going to get out of it. You'll have an earthly reward, and that's it. That you should keep your motives pure because motives do matter. But Paul is saying something different here. He is saying the gospel is so powerful, so wonderful, and so precious that it doesn't matter what it costs, and it doesn't matter who gives the message, and it doesn't even matter what reasons they have for doing it. The gospel is so good. Jesus, the good news that is being announced is so wonderful and gracious and loving and powerful and forgiving that even if the message arrives from a bad messenger with self-seeking motives, the gospel can still save. And with that, Paul says, with surrounded by these men in these shackles, I will rejoice. You see, a fireman may run into a building and rescue another man from dying a fiery death, looking only at his own promotion. He may be happy that somebody's in the building because he thinks, good, this will get me noticed, this will get me the job I want. A doctor may invent a cure for a dread disease to gain fame and wealth from it. The point is, it doesn't matter what motivates the fireman to get into the building. It doesn't matter what motivates the doctor to invent the cure. So long as the man is rescued, so long as the man is cured, he is saved. Paul's not saying that motives don't matter. He's saying that they're secondary to the goodness of the gospel, that the gospel has to come first. It has to be at the center. It has to be the eternal thing that we keep in front of us to steer and help us understand every circumstance that God puts us through. So let's bring it down to a right here, right now at our church. You've said spreading the gospel will cost us money. Somebody said it will cost us relationships and friendships. I want you to be personal for a second. Who in your, if you know Jesus, if you don't, this will be an impossible question for you, but if you do know Jesus, who in your circle of friends that you can personally give that good news to, who in your circle of friends needs to know about him next? 
Could I give you a minute to think about that and to write some names down? Start with those closest to you, maybe in your own home, and then move that circle outward. With every name you write, there's going to be a cost associated with telling them the good news. If those people are on your heart, I'd love for them to be on our staff's heart as well. If you'll write their names down on that card, turn it in at the end of the service, we'd love to pray for them with you. See, every one of those names represents both a cost and an opportunity. The opportunity is that they will be saved. A few minutes ago, Rebecca was in the baptismal. I don't mean to put her on the spot, but that was amazing. I don't know if you could tell, she cried all the way through it. This weekend, I officiated a a wedding, and I could tell when I got there, some of the people in the groom's party, they looked cool, very hip. Some of them may be here. Fellas, any of you make it? Okay. Said they might. I wouldn't say anything about them that I wouldn't say publicly, all right? I could tell on the front side, just these are guys that do something tough for a living. Sure enough, a whole bunch of military types. Probably the biggest among them looked like the recruiting poster, waist like this, shoulders like that. Death before dishonor tattoo peeking out from under one shirt sleeve. And he said, now, where's your church again? Crossplane. He goes, I've been to your church. He said, I was there not this Christmas Eve, but the last, he said, and that's when I got my testimony. He said, that's when it all made sense to me. He said, and I don't cry for anything, but I started crying then. And that's all I could get. But if I understood the story correctly, after who knows how many times of hearing the gospel, that's when he trusted Christ. That's when he was saved. See, this gospel is so good that it doesn't matter what it costs to get it to someone it doesn't even matter who takes it there. It doesn't even matter what motives are actually in their heart. The good news of a Savior who, according to the Bible, was crucified according to God's promise and resurrected according to God's promise, that same Jesus who's alive can save and wants to save anyone. It's not a question of whether Jesus will save. The question is whether Jesus will be proclaimed, whether he will be made known. And we're a church of, I don't know, I can't keep track, some 600 people. If four or five names are on your heart in your circle of friends, that represents many thousands of people that you can be a messenger to, and you never know. It might be in, your, in this year that it may be your friend being baptized. It may be you that can't stop crying because you can't believe that it's them up there in the baptistry. Or it may be many years from now, after all kinds of tough things in life, to create a man who does not cry, who finally says in a church I didn't even know, God turned the light on for me, and I got it, and I believed, and that's when I got my testimony. That's how he explained it. What matters? Getting the gospel out. 
whoever does it, at whatever cost, for whatever reason, what matters most is telling people the good news about Jesus. So when you hear me say all year long that the arrows have to point out, that we have to redirect our energy to not primarily care for ourselves, but to care and love one another so that we can go out, what that ultimately means is that people have to hear of Jesus. If they only meet us, if they only admire our good works, all of that will be in vain. It will do earthly good, but it will be wiped out by eternity. But if by all of those good things we are able to introduce them to the ultimate good person, the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, that's going to fill this church with joy. That's going to change your year when your friends and family receive God's good news through you. And my prayer for you and for myself is that I'll be less concerned about me and more concerned about Christ, and less concerned about me and more concerned about their souls, because what matters most is telling them the good news of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Can I give you a second to take those names to God? Maybe your own kids. That's who I pray for first and most every day, my wife and my children, that God will keep them close to Jesus, that they'll never fall out of love with Him. Then, I, I mean, I'm convinced and convicted and actually pretty sorry that so many of my neighbors have lived so long close to a pastor, and a lot of them have not, I'll be honest, have not heard a clear explanation of Jesus. temptation is to succumb to a routine of coming to worship and loving and learning more and more and more about the Lord and not turning it to output to reach others. The temptation is to become a club rather than an embassy. So take those names to the Lord and let's ask Jesus that in His time and His way with all the different people that He'll use, through us and through others, the people we love and are closest to us will hear about Him and be saved. Lord, You're so good. You save and rescue little children. You bring young ones to faith in You and help them grow their whole lives under Your care. You rescue others, Lord, who are very far from You, who don't think You could ever love them. You save young and old, rich and poor. Everyone, Lord, stands at the same exact ground, a needy sinner who cannot be saved apart from the grace of your Son. Help us as a church, as individuals and as families to love you and love that truth so much that we can't help but talk about it so that others will know at whatever cost to us that you are the Savior and that they would actually be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.